Welcome back to another episode of the Connected Aviation Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Woodrow Bellamy III, and on this episode, we'll be featuring a recording of the live presentation given by Brad Grady of Northern Sky Research during last week's live 2022 Connected Aviation Intelligence Summit. So as all of our existing listeners and new listeners uh, to let you know, we held our three-day 2022 Connected Aviation Intelligence event last week at the Hyatt Regency in Reston, Virginia, not far from Dulles International Airport. Within our next few episodes release, we'll be featuring some of the live presentations given during last week's event. This episode will feature the 2022 State of the In-Flight Connectivity Industry given by Brad Grady, Senior Consultant with Northern Sky Research. He answers a range of questions about the in-flight connectivity market in his overview, including how many total in-flight connectivity service providers there are in the world right now, how many airlines have connectivity, and some of the key in-flight connectivity market trends to be aware of over the next few years, such as the introduction of low Earth orbit or LEO satellite networks, 5G connectivity, antenna trends, and a whole lot more. So let's get into this very insightful discussion on everything you need to know about in-flight connectivity given by Brad Grady of Northern Sky Research during last week's 2022 Connected Aviation Intelligence Summit. Awesome. It is great to be here. So like Woodrow said, I've uh, had the privilege, I think, of attending almost every single one of these. And back in the day, the big conversation, and it seems weird to be able to say back in the day, um, but the big conversation was all about Battle of the Bands, KU versus KA. Maybe it was this wide beam geo versus spot beam geo. Now we've migrated a little bit because we always like to pick fights with each other in the satellite industry of is it geo, is it not geo. So today I'm going to spend a few minutes distilling some of those facts, ask maybe a couple of questions, talk a little bit about myself and, and what we're up to here at NSR. And you know, hopefully we'll have some time for questions. If not, there's a break right afterwards and you, know, you can find me and uh, our marketing person here, Kristen, in the back to get some of that information. So. I'll do a little bit of a sales pitch just because, hey, I'm obligated. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on up in space and across that value chain. So kind of looking from what we would call the teleport or the gateway, so where the internet connects to the satellite, to the satellite as it looks down to the plane, and then at the plane looking all the way back up. Talk about what that ecosystem means for kind of that aero IFC market. Um, if you're a player in that area, you probably don't need me to tell you about it, but I think it's good just to kind of have that outside perspective. And then we'll wrap up that conversation and then open it up for, for Q&A. So if you have not heard, uh, Northern Sky Research is uh, recently acquired by Analysis Mason. Um, you're forgiven if you've never heard of Analysis Mason. They're a UK-based company focused on kind of the TMT, so the technology, media, and telecom space. Really great insights into 5G, IoT, emerging applications. So now we're kind of leading the way at NSR in this satellite terrestrial hybridization kind of being driven by 5G standards, software, all these other kinds of things. So we're still giving all of those great insights and analysis on the satellite and space communi community into this market, as well as bringing all of their insights and all of I guess, our insights now, it's, it's only been about a month, so it's gotta get the pronouns right, um, into this area. 
So they have some really great insights and programs into things like uh, mobile gaming. I know that's always a big topic when we talk about Leo, of whether or not there's really an opportunity there. And some of their insights and analysis talk about cl the cloud aspect of gaming, so kind of the you know, GeForce or Microsoft or Xbox cloud applications. Is there uh, you know, a play for service providers to monetize those opportunities, create you know, differentiated network pathways, which plays very well into what we talk about in this space of saying, I'm going to bring Leo, which is maybe a differentiated service. I maybe need to be able to charge a premium to capture some of that additional cost or value. So how can I, as a service provider or as an airline, create a differentiated value-centric product that my customers really enjoy and you know, monetize this? So across both of our companies now, we have some really great insights and analysis. So I encourage you to check out our website, you know, ask me questions, and all those other kind of things. But I want to start off with one really big question, which is when we do consulting work in this space, we might not start here, but usually somewhere somebody asks this kind of really obvious question. And it starts with this. This airplane is my. And depending on who you ask that question or what your reference point is, you'll get a couple of different answers. If you just think it's your equipment, I'm sorry, I'm not going to focus on kind of the IoT. I know there's a radium guy here. I'm Sorry, I'm not going to talk about the M2M the M IoT space, although that's kind of really mission critical. And we do start to see that driving some of the conversations of, now that this aircraft is connected, can I get some of that operational data off and do some predictive analytics and, and maintenance and other things to kind of improve cost efficiencies? I'm going to focus mostly on those other buckets of, is this an office? So I'm going to get on this aircraft. I want to do some SharePoint services. I want to do some Teams conversations. Maybe I won't do a team call because I know voice calls in the US are kind of verboten. Um, is it a bedroom? Like when I get on the plane, I usually am asleep before the door closes. Uh, is it a movie theater? If it's a movie theater, does that change my experience? Do I really want to watch it on my little tiny device? Maybe I, you know, I brought a big you know, tablet with me, and that's the device I want to use instead of the seatback entertainment. Maybe I forgot to load some movies before I got or left the hotel or my adventure. Maybe I did. Or is this something else, some other new use case that we haven't even thought about yet? So answering this question really does start to influence this whole ecosystem of conversations as we think about what is the right technology solution to implement the best value, the kind of differentiated service that all these airlines and everybody is really looking to provide. So a quick review, just to kind of get some definitions and, and those things out of the way. So the satellite and space industry is moving from geo, so it's all the way out there at the light, about 35,000 kilometers, 22,000 miles out, and it's getting closer. So we have names for when it gets closer. There's MEO, which is where O3B sits. There's LEO, which is where Iridium is, OneWeb. Starlink, you know, Telesat, Kuiper, all those kinds of new whiz-banging constellations. And you can see on the graph that when you're far enough out, you kind of see a lot of the world. You have to shout really loudly to get there. And it probably takes a little bit of time. So this is where we start thinking about latency. This is where the satellite industry has historically been. So that's big geo stuff about the size of a school bus. Um, get launched up there. They last for about 15 years, maybe a little bit less. We'll talk a little bit about some of those changes that are going on by you know, some of our friends in Anuvu and Astronus. Mio changes that paradigm. It kind of brings it a little bit closer. It means you don't have to shout as loudly, so maybe you can use a different antenna infrastructure. You can use a different ground network. You can solve this, solve this problem of connectivity a few different ways, but you do need more satellites to get there, which implements, you know, higher costs on the system. 
And then down to LEO, where you see a much smaller per percentage of the world per satellite, which means you need a lot of satellites in order to solve that problem. But again, that changes the design equation, that changes the terminal infrastructure you need. Maybe that alters and you know, adds and subtracts a couple of different capabilities. It definitely lowers your latency. So as we think about that monetizing cloud-based gaming services, this isn't just crazy talk. This is something that maybe is something that you can explore. And these are some of those challenges in that LEO space. So we think about IP throughput, you know, something that's kind of not really space-centric. But how do IP data traffic route through some of these very complex constellations? How is that managed? How is that controlled? Is it higher or better or worse? The altitudes that they're in influences the field of vision that the, spa that the, you know, the spacecraft can see, that the plane can see, that the number of satellites that are in the field of view. I'm not an engineer, so there's lots of very complicated things that kind of influence all these system level choices. But understanding some of these terms and some of these concepts from a business viewpoint or an implementation perspective does start to come back and think of, if this is a movie theater, maybe I don't really need to have Leo, where latency and kind of all these other kinds of things give some advantages, but there's all this other complexity that are lots of knowns and unknowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns, all these weird new things that kind of we're just now starting to, to figure out and explore. But all of this influences their coverage patterns. All of this influences the amount of bandwidth supply that they have available. Maybe this dictates what kind of customer choices you want to make or vendor choices or any of those kinds of things. And so, because I'm a space geek, I really like to distill the market into three big pillars. Um, so $1.2 trillion in cumulative revenues from 2020 to 2030. This is kind of the way we see the market here in NSR. This covers the launch, the manufacturing, crew, cargo missions, space tourism and all the way down to the Aero IFC market, and we'll get into what that slice of the market looks like. I think I hit the black button. Um, no, okay. Um, so that center pillar, 24,800, and I don't forget the last digit, uh, satellites to be launched. These are all those satellites that are kind of coming over into the next 10 years. All the orbital regimes, all the size masses you can think of. So these are everything from little tiny kind of CubeSats that uh, college students are doing to launch their careers or explore the space market, all the way up to those big, heavy geosatellites that are doing all sorts of stuff of connecting airlines or working on government and military applications. And that last bucket, 500, and 500, 500 exabytes about, um, that is all the amount of data that's being transmitted to and from space. So this looks at Let's count how much data traffic is being used from IoT applications, M2M applications, Earth observation, all those things that are moving kind of through the cosmos or kind of in that near-Earth atmosphere as we really start to kind of evolve that, that thing. So as we think about those three big pillars of the industry, that is the context in which the whole ecosystem is really working around and navigating through. Um, so I guess as they're, as they're working through here. Um, I guess we can do some Q&A, I guess. No, I don't know. Um, but we think about all of those kinds of big things that are really impacting the industry right now. So there's this migration to LEO, this, this change of what geo looks like, whether or not we're having big, heavy geosatellites to small, little, tiny geosatellites that changes the CapEx and OpEx equations. What does ownership really even mean in this industry? It's a really huge, dynamic time about what's going on and what's happening in kind of everything, really. And this comes at the footsteps. There we go. 
So I guess I'll, I'll click through. Um, this kind of comes at the footsteps of launch. So we could thank Elon Musk, and we can thank all of the little launch companies that are coming out there in the market, but about 94% of launches over the next 10 years by mass are less than 500 kilograms. So hey, I'm an airline, what does this mean to me? This probably means that the satellites that you may or may not be using are more or less complicated than what you're used to. Maybe they're kind of, you know, a little bit dumb, sorry. Um, or maybe if you're in geo, they're really super complex. Maybe they're in this genre of satellites that we call software-defined satellites, where they have the ability to dynamically reroute traffic or follow your aircraft or follow your this, follow your that, depending on kind of how the network is built. Now, what does that mean? That means kind of the network utilization, the price you ultimately pay may vary greatly based on what these kind of architectures mean. We're also seeing that a lot of these systems are kind of in this you know, do-it-yourself world, or maybe they're buying it off the shelf. But if you look at that bottom bar, that's the constellation market, or that's the communications market, that's where everyone in this industry is probably most familiar with or most exposed to, a lot of these are built in-house. So these are kind of the Starlink satellites that are launched where they're probably the most vertically integrated satellite operator, service provider, or systems launch company, whatever you want to do. They do everything, um, or almost everything. I'm sure they, there's some things that they don't do. Um, but on a percentage basis, you still see that a lot of those things are outsourced, so these are kind of the OneWebs, the Kuipers, the, you know, the traditional geosatellites and all those other kinds of things. Other markets, it depends on what, what your application is. But we're starting to see this increase year over year of people saying, in order to deliver my, insert the blank, service, I probably need to have some resources in space that I can use and leverage. And I probably want to be able to have ultimate design control over these. And this is, I think, the chart that everyone really cares about in this room. So this is satellite, satellite supply from 2005 all the way to 2030. In 2005, it was about 336 gigabits a second. So you can imagine servicing the entire globe between all the aircraft in the world, all the troops that were deployed all over the world, all the cruise ships, everything on 333 gigabits a second. You know, so I guess I have a, a 300th of that at my home. Um, 2013 was a big pivotal moment. We exceeded a terabyte a second. So it took us eight years to get there, but hey, terabyte a second. A lot of that was from geo. A lot of that was through this technology called HTS, high throughput satellites, where we took that big beam that was spread out over a third of the world and we shrunk it down into what we call little tiny spot beams. So it's kind of like how your cell phone works. And today, 2022, we're looking at a little bit over 40 uh, terabytes a second of demand, a lot of or supply. Now, before you kind of flame me and say, hey, this doesn't match the fact that my supplier is telling me that North America and KU band, we're having the supply shortage, yes. Not all supply is created equal. There are kind of instances, and like we looked at Leo, that because you're starting to look at smaller and smaller pieces of the world, that as we start to see those traffic beams, those little geographic areas see much higher density and use patterns, you're going to see supply shortages. But by 2030, we expect to see 172 terabits a second of supply on orbit. Again, not all that supply is created equal. A lot of that will be over the oceans or kind of other areas where we start to see these kind of lower utilization rates. But it is fundamentally changing the approach the industry has to kind of on-orbit capacity and how these networks are built and created. Now, to get to that last pillar, that 500 exabytes of data, where you start to see constellations are driving the volume, satellite communications 
is the dominant use case for space-based resources. So as much as we all like to see those Earth observation images, it's still pushing data to and from space. It really does drive data volumes. About 51 non-geo HTS, so this is what we call LEO and, non Leo and MEO, grow about 51% from that time period. And overall, we see about 27% data volume growth from 2020 to 2030. So huge numbers, at least for us in the space industry, of what's really going on in constellations. So this kind of system of satellites that are working together in concert to deliver an end-to-end -end seamless service are really driving a lot of these changes here. And so is the market in equilibrium? This is, again, I get to put on my kind of economist hat here and you know, geek out with supply and demand. So in the FSS world, again, this kind of geo beam that covers a third of the world at a time, mostly used for kind of the traditional video broadcasting services, and now is probably enabling a lot of these connected aircraft to some degree, or cruise ships, or you know, government military missions. We would say that market is in relative equilibrium based on fill rates and utilization capacity and all these other kinds of things. Now we move over to the spot beam market where there's little tiny spot beams all over the world and one spot beam in the ocean is the same as one spot beam you know, over O'Hare or Dulles or out of those things. And we'd probably say no. But just because the supply view is saying one thing doesn't entirely mean that revenues and other sides of the market are in line because the measures of success for these spacecraft are rapidly changing. It's not just based on fill rates. It's not just based on kind of the total use, utilization divided by total supply. It's really based on kind of this return on capital employed and looking at, we know these beams are gonna be more popular than those beams, changing those price points and looking at kind of this more kind of micro level viewpoint of supply and demand. And all of this is really looking to unlock revenues. So as we start to look at some of these big pillars of demand here or revenue source, you can see crew and cargo, this is sending, you know, crew like astronauts and uh, space tourists up to you know, LEO, so the ISS and those sorts of things. A huge big pillar, satellite communications is not the connectivity layer, but the building of the stuff that connects all of these things. And all the way down there at the bottom, you can see mobility. So this is where kind of aero IFC fits amongst these big thing, big kind of pillars of demand that we, we see when we look at uh, the global space economy. Constellations are a significant driver of infrastructure spend, like we saw. They're a significant driver changing all kinds of paradigms in the market. It's a 6.3% CAGR overall for revenues from 2020 to 2030. And all of these new use cases, all these new applications, these changing price points of access to space and availability and being able to launch at a more rapid cadence, changing those satellites because they're getting smaller and unlocking new people and new, new areas is really unlocking new applications across the connectivity segment and thereover. Okay, so that was all about the space industry. So really exciting things that are going on there. And now I wanna pivot a little bit and talk specifically about IFC. So we have an aer uh, aeronautical SATCOM markets reports in its 10th edition. We've been, at NSR, we've been focused on this market for a lot more than 10 years, but this is its 10 year and kind of dedicated syndication. So if we think back about that $1.2 trillion in the global space economy, 42% of those comes from satellite communications, 30% of that is mobility, and down there in that little green bar is $48 billion. Now while that might not look like a lot, if you're a satellite operator and you're playing in that 30%, $48 billion looks like a really big juicy number. It's also one of the markets that's growing. 
I mean, I think just recently we've seen Delta announce that they're kind of exceeding their revenue forecast. United's done the same. A lot of kind of second quarter, first quarter, you know, financial guidance has said, hey, travel is back, or at least revenues are back to kind of exceeding 2019 levels. Now, some of that's because of increased fees, and some of that will be eaten up by higher fuel costs. But you have to imagine that all of the connectivity announcements that's happened over the past couple of months is going to have an influence into how much the satellite industry is paying attention to airlines and aeronautical connectivity markets. So kind of the big takeaway is one out of every $25 in NSR's global space economy data is from aeronautical IFC. So again, that might not seem like a lot, but you know, it's kind of an important number. And here's kind of the big trends that we're seeing as we start to think about aero IFC. Now these are really tiny data, really, really tiny kind of words, um, but I think we kind of all know really what they are. So COVID-19 and its big impact on the market, is it still here or is it not here? Is it gonna wax and wane? Is it gonna be with us forever? Are we going to have all of a sudden travel bans and international markets shutting down that changes the sensitivity rates of being able to make significant CapEx investments on wide body aircraft? And because you're not investing in wide body aircraft connectivity, maybe that really changes your thinking and paradigm as to whether or not how important oceanic coverage is. Because oceanic coverage maybe is less or more important, that's gonna influence the satellite design and that's gonna influence the network. And ultimately that's gonna influence the, you know, the money that you see or the, the price you see on the RFP. Geopolitical crises are shifting airline routes. So kind of on the other side, maybe you weren't expecting to have to have aero to oceanic coverage, but now some airspace is closed down. So if you're kind of you know, going from Europe to Asia, all of a sudden you are flying over an ocean and maybe the network that you had designed and contracted with your service provider is no longer going to work. Uh-oh, what do you do? Well, hopefully, Either the network is robust enough and they also have capacity there, or maybe it's compatible with other players or sources of connect capacity up in space because as much as things are changing, it still takes a while to get stuff up there if it doesn't exist. But this is another area where you start to think about, huh, if I make a design choice today, how do I think about my risk profile and other factors that are going on in the world to kind of enable these seamless connectivity experiences where if people think my aircraft is a movie theater and they're streaming it on their personal device because that's the experience that I designed and promised, if all of a sudden I have to fly over an ocean and there's no capacity there, people are probably gonna be a little upset. Now we've seen business aviation travel kind of bounce back. That was one of the first areas that really did bounce back on kind of private jets and those sorts of areas. Maybe business travel in general has kind of bounced back. I don't know if folks have been traveling lately, but it does seem like all of the first class and premium seats and all those other kinds of things are fairly full. Um, and, you know, they're not cheap. Fundraising has occurred. Uh, Nuvu did kind of raise some more money to, launch, to help launch their constellation of microgeos that they're coming up. We've seen C-band clearing, so this is kind of, again, one of these niche things kind of for the satellite sector, but basically, the satellite operators that had some frequency allocations got some money to leave them so terrestrial wireless could come in and do that. Because, they've, because they received some of these funding, they were able to increase their kind of, you know, CapEx investments by improving their satellites on orbit, which means, again, because IFC is one of these big industry drivers, they were able to deliver new products and services in their pipeline that they might not have otherwise been able to do. Some new capacities coming online. We still continue to see, you know, maybe some supply chain challenges and other kinds of disruptions in the near term, but rest assured that they are coming. We might not know kind of exactly the right month, 
but they're still in the pipeline, they're still on the plants, they haven't been scrapped because these things take a long time to build still. We do see capacity pricing dropping. So again, getting back to this 172 terabits a second of or supply on orbit by 2030, that is influencing pricing dynamics. Maybe we're starting to see some leveling off. Maybe we're still seeing some, some pricing declines kind of on a year-over-year -year basis. We, we just launched our pricing study, um, so I wasn't able to grab some of that data to share here today. Um, but rest assured, you can go on our website or, or send me an email and we can have those conversations. And we're starting to see fundamentally changes in how people, when they get on board an aircraft, engage with connectivity. A lot of this is COVID-19 related. People are just demanding connectivity wherever they go. I mean, for a while there it was, you know, what's going on in the world type stuff. Now it's I need to kind of just do general connection services. Again, getting back to these, you know, this aircraft is sort of thinking. And we do see a lot of these kinds of IFC solutions in the market. So we, we tend to show this slide, uh, I think every year I went back to our 2018 deck that we shared and there was something very similar to this. Um, operators, there's about more than 15 have IFC customers in some way, shape or manner, whether or not these are kind of, you know, they're a direct customer, so they're kind of a customer of themselves or they have kind of this wholesale relationship across the value chain. But operators in our world are the people that own and operate the satellites that are up there in space. They can be in Geo, Mio or Leo. Um, we don't really discriminate um, in their orbital regime when we talk about operators. But if you're an airline, if you're a service provider, if you're kind of anywhere else in the value chain, you've probably seen them moving closer downstream to the customers. So as they start to see that one out of every $25 is from airlines contributing into their markets, they're starting to say, how much of that margin do I give up by just being a wholesale provider? Maybe I need to change the paradigm, increase the relationship. Now, not everybody's taking that approach. Others are saying, hey, actually, there's a strategic advantage of not doing that because maybe I can increase my market share. All, valid, all sound valid strategies. There's about 12 active service providers in the market. So these are the people that are actually stitching together the, the networks that are doing all of this connectivity and all these kinds of things. Um, a lot of them were affected by COVID-19, so it'll be great to see kind of as kind of the industry revolves and has bounced back from 2019 levels what that really looks like. On the airline side, we're tracking about more than 90 that have connectivity services. Most of them are North America, Europe, Asia. Um, it is up, so every, every kind of year we do this slide, it, it increases by a couple, and I think this year was one of the larger increases. But this is kind of the boiled down, distilled you know, value chain. There's obviously hardware providers and onboard kind of you know, routers and you know, all sorts of other folks that are really delivering against this whole value chain. But when we think about it from a connectivity perspective, these are the three main buckets that we really start to think about. And I have a little bit more complex one, you know, as we start to go into that thought leadership side. And so geo remains strong for now. So I want to kind of stop there for a second. So what does that really mean? There is lots of inertia still with geocentric services connecting airframes and aircraft. As I think everyone in this room knows, you can't just go out to an aircraft and say, I don't like that antenna, take it out and put a new one on, and that's like you know, 30 minutes. It's not like changing your home Wi-Fi router or changing out your cell phone. You don't go down to the Apple store and give me like, you know, upgrade the latest and greatest. Now, maybe your aircraft has an antenna that is capable of roaming into some of these new systems that are coming online. 
But those are very much beta cases. Those are kind of fringe examples. They may become the mainstream, but we're not there yet. So Geo kind of generates about $1.1 billion. The whole market's about $2.2 billion right now, depending on whether or not you include air-to-ground services, whether or not you include business jets in, in terms of this whole thing. GeoHTS by 2030 accounts for 64% of the market. Or sorry, 2031. So even by 2031, we're still seeing that Geo and that spot beam GeoHTS services by the likes of Immersat, Biosat, SES, you know, you can kind of Intelsat. You can name it, any of the large geo operators have these spot beam centric geo capacities where they're able to kind of maximize frequency reuse and increase throughput. There's still gonna be a predominant source of connectivity in the market. Now that orange slice, the, the bright orange slice in the 2030 chart is the non-geo services. So this is Leo and this is Mio. This is broadband. So, you know, Iridium, you're kind of up in the L-band service, and I'll recognize that you're, you know, you're not in geo. Um, but the main takeaway here is that although things are moving extremely quickly in geo, in, in kind of non-geo services, we're all talking about it, we're all thinking about it, it still takes a while for these services to become kind of production networks deployed on aircraft. And this is where we start to ask ourselves, what's the use case you're designing around? What's your risk profile? How willing are you to make maybe a, you know, a couple hundred million, a billion dollar bet? How willing are you to delay putting aircraft into service and other kinds of you know, things to take advantage of some of these new technologies where if you don't understand your customer, if you don't realize that they care about latency, if you don't know that maybe they really do want to change the quality of experience, and you know, Peter and the seamless airless guys, We'll talk about some of the work they're doing there on the quality of experience metric. If you don't understand that, don't get caught up in the hype. I mean, maybe it's not hype, because these things are real. Um, but just kind of think about all of these other downstream impacts that these may or may not have to kind of the functional aspects of operating your airline every day or connecting your aircraft. And so once we start to think about, okay, that, that's a lot to take in that, you know, geo is going to be around for a while because of, you know, it takes a while to change out my antenna or maybe there's some really big inertia that's going on. Okay, that's great. Maybe I don't even, you know, if you're thinking right, you probably don't entirely care about the technology, just like you don't care if your cell phone's on 1500 megahertz or 1700 megahertz or 4.6 gigahertz. Like, you don't, you don't entirely care what spectrum your, your cell phone uses. You probably care a lot about what AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile or Deutsche Telekom, whatever those cell phone providers charge you, just like you do with your service provider. And so today in 2021, I guess last year in 2021, we see the retail service model dominating kind of this market, about 52%. So this is where, I guess the best way we describe it is a service provider comes in and kind of leases space on an aircraft to provide connectivity services. They do it at about 47 airlines, and they manage kind of everything. And maybe there's some revenue share, maybe there's some pricing schemes going on, but those are kind of all business choices. What the customer sees is they come on board and there's kind of a service provider that provides all those services. Now, let's kind of think again about what this, airline, what this aircraft is going to be to me as a passenger as I get on board. And as we're starting to see in kind of these future-looking groups, these innovation groups that are being spun up and built into a lot of these airlines, they're understanding that 
managing a multi-service vendor network, which is maybe advantageous because you want some disaggregation, maybe a certain, set a certain you know, group of your aircraft do a certain route, another group does another route, maybe these people have a, you know, a special widget or a special STC, they have a competitive advantage of serving Airbus versus Boeing or wide body versus narrow body, or you just want competitive diver you know, vendor diversity to kind of hedge your bets and kind of do that you know, as a strategic move. The airline-directed model, which is about 43% in 2021, is increasingly becoming more popular. And we expect to see that continue. Now, there's always going to be kind of those early or those late adopters to IFC services, where maybe they don't have the internal resources to manage. Maybe that's just something that they realize or not, they don't want to do, they don't want to get into, they don't understand it, or they don't want to have, or they can't spend their internal resources on. So the retail model probably won't ever go away. But large airline groups, the ones that I think a lot of us are really focused on, the ones that are really starting to drive some of these you know, connectivity solutions, some of these vendor choices, really pushing price points and pushing you know, RFPs, are, are starting to go to with these hybrid or kind of being more in the you know, passenger seat, I guess, or pilot seat, <laughs> given where we are. And it's really driven by these need to harmonize multi-vendor networks and services to deliver this you know, consistent user experience across all of their fleet. You know, when you step on a narrow body or a wide body or a regional aircraft, if you're going to Denver or Dallas or Dubai or Doha or, you know, New Delhi or anything, you know, you want your passenger to have a very consistent experience and you probably need to be more in control of what that end-to-end -end network looks like. Again, getting into this, you know, can't you bring Wi-Fi from the United Club all the way, you know, across the gate into the aircraft. The same thing holds true aircraft to aircraft, route to route to route to route. And so that's kind of how the market that we see it. Now, part of our other, so that's kind of one of our big research efforts is kind of publishing these, you know, multi-client reports, a syndicated research on kind of the state of the airline connectivity market. We do that on pricing. We do that on capacity, supply, and demand. A lot of those things get used for kind of vendors as they're thinking about where they invest in their next things from end users of whether or not they need to think about, you know, renegotiating price points in their contracts, all those other kinds of points. But in our custom research, our custom consulting engagements, we get a lot more kind of nitty gritty. And we sit on both sides of the fence between the vendors, suppliers, the airlines, and we have these conversations. So I want to get back to this kind of this opening big thought piece of this airplane is my. And I think now this is an increasingly important question because now we've moved from, hey, connectivity, I checked the box, to, hey, now connectivity, it's important, and maybe people are actually voting with their wallets as to whether or not that connectivity experience was good and bad. So maybe I need to understand what that connectivity experience is, is today, which kind of I need to measure and monitor and report and record and do some data analytics. And I also need to think about what the expectations of that connectivity experience is, and this gets into these different use cases. So with COVID and all of us working kind of from home in a disaggregated environment, we all got very familiar with cloud-based services. Cloud-based services, if you've tried to use it on an aircraft, on a geoconnection, are kind of terrible sometimes, um, especially if they're not optimized, especially if you're just kind of using vanilla Office 365 or SharePoint or Salesforce or any of those that require lots of kind of communications from your computer back to the internet and back and forth to TCP IP, those handshakes, they take up lots of stuff. So, the network isn't designed well, and even if it is designed well, sometimes, hey, stuff happens. If it's a bedroom, I can't help you there. You know, that's, that's not an IFC problem. You just need a good, comfy seat. 
If it's a movie theater, hey, maybe there's some kind of trades that we can make as an airline or as an industry where we start to think about, do we provide and invest more resources on cached content on board and a server, or do we just have awesome connectivity and people bring their best of breed personal streaming services on board because that's going to give them the best you know, media experience that they want because, hey, they signed up for it, they subscribed, so they obviously think that's awesome. And then to get back to the kind of gaming example where is this a monetizable opportunity if I provide differentiated cloud-based gaming services, kind of where we see you know, Apple Music has come out and sponsored some of these you know, IFC packages, Amazon Prime was another one. Is, are these kind of third-party monetization hybrid business models that traditionally haven't been a significant percentage of the market, but maybe you know, because Leo blah, 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 maybe that could unlock these new use cases that my passengers and my customers and my crew have really been craving because maybe, hey, it would be really awesome to do you know, real-time chat or real-time this or real-time that um, on board. And so this is where we kind of get to this, one of these big points where we think, sorry, there's a fly here, where we think about designing with the end in mind. Now, I know this is, is incredibly kind of simple, but we kind of divide the market into two thought worlds where non-geo, you think about mega, the milliseconds matter more than megabits because that's really, at the end of the day, all things being equal, the one thing that they can deliver better than geos. And then on the other world, you think about on the geo side where maybe just big pipes matter the most and latency is not so important. So these are kind of turn-based gaming, so not all gaming requires low latency. So if you're kind of in the casual single-player games or like the free app download stuff where you're kind of doing turn-based gaming, you know, World of Warcraft or Diablo or any of those other kinds of things, and I'll kind of date myself and put myself in a special geek bucket. Um, those things are probably okay over a geo-connection, right? Like, let's just be real there. Like, you don't need super low latency to do World of Warcraft, okay? Um, Web surfing, okay, maybe just generic web surfing. If I go on Amazon and I want to go buy something on board or you know, I was flying back from Iceland and I booked a hotel trip, that, that, that was fine over a geoconnection. You know, no worries, in the middle of the Atlantic, I booked a hotel, and it worked, it worked okay. Um, streaming video, right? You don't really need low latency for streaming video. Big pipes are really the key to serving streaming video. And I think we've started to see that and realize that Geo can do streaming video just fine. Um, social media, maybe that's a fringe case where, hey, if you really want to have super engagement, whatever. Um, but if you kind of expand social media just to include IP texting and all those other kinds of things, iMessages works okay kind of on, on the chat. I mean, I, you know, just to kind of do a use case, you know, if both of us, like my family will travel, I'm sitting on one seat, my wife or my daughter are sitting in two seats back from me, hey, we can text, we're going, you know, to some data center down in, you know, wherever, Northern Virginia, in the middle of the Atlantic, but we're texting back and forth just fine, right, because I'm lazy, I don't want to get up and talk to them. Um, aircraft operational data is another one, hey, maybe you don't really need super low latency, now maybe if you're doing debugging or, you know, if we were on an oil rig and you wanted to get off the camera because the drill bit was bad and you needed to have some you know, person down in Houston or Aberdeen because they're the expert, look at this oil rig, okay. But I'm fairly certain that the pilot's not gonna get their phone out and go look at the engine in flight and say, hey, what's going on? You know, maybe there's like, hey, this weird noise when you really need to divert. Okay, you know, maybe those things, but I think that's more in the predictive analytics models. 
and portal content updates. So this is kind of moving away from the sneaker net USB drive or you know, plugging the plane into a fiber connection. Maybe there's like rolling updates. We see this in the maritime SACOM industry where they push out kind of chart updates, they push out content packages, they push out all these kinds of updates. And that's really efficient on geo. You kind of think about where geo is best. It's in this point to multi-point network where I have an entire fleet of aircraft over North America, it's 10 a.m., it's time for them to get their you know, daily news update. I'm just gonna push a button and it's done. You don't need to you know, send out 10,000 USB drives or have a USB drive that kind of go between all the aircraft. It's just you know, point click. So those are good things and there's probably a thousand more that we can put on that list and, and probably a thousand more that we haven't even thought of that would be okay on the geo side. So if that's what you're designing against, if you just wanna have really awesome streaming media on board, you want passengers to come on board and sign on with Disney and Netflix and you know, TikTok and whatever the latest and greatest streaming media service is on, you're probably okay with Geo. Now, if you really do wanna go after that real-time online gaming, the Fortnite, the Counter-Strike, the, you know, all these other kinds of first-person shooters, Halo, right, because Halo, the TV series is up, so I think we're all being uh, you know, nostalgic. Those will require non-geo services, I'm sorry. Latency is important there, that really matters. We can probably even argue that late, like doing that stuff over a satellite connection is probably gonna be super frustrating if packet loss is you know, super high because hey, you know, these satellites are moving and connecting and all these other kinds of things. If for some odd reason you really wanna torture your seatmates and do a voice or a video call, okay, you're gonna need a, a low latency non-geo connection there. There's probably some regulatory and peer pressure that says that's not an optimal choice. You wanna do interactive cloud services, so that's probably a little bit better use case. You wanna use some collaborative tools. We're all probably using Teams or Slack or you kinda of name it. Some, I'm updating a file in Excel or I'm updating the PowerPoint for this presentation and I wanna get some input from you know, one of our, my colleagues overseas. You know, if I, we were both at home, that would be no problem, but hey, because I'm in this weird thing called an aircraft over the ocean using this super weird thing called a satellite that makes it super complicated. Maybe we wanna look at reducing those friction points because a significant percentage of the people that either you know, are our most loyal customers or the customers we wanna keep or you know, the customers we wanna target really do depend on having a low latency geo connection. And maybe highly secured IP traffic. I mean, we can talk about you know, the, the internet is just becoming more secure in general with encryption and other kinds of technologies that prevent geo optimization by injecting caching and all these other kinds of you know, geeky terms, again, not, not the engineer or an IP person. Um, but those are other things that we start to see, well, maybe if that's a significant percentage of your web traffic, maybe it makes sense to kind of go down this, this road. But ultimately, you know, you distill all of these things, understanding the passenger use case influences the ultimate end-to-end -end network design starting with what your passengers want, what they wanna do, what they can't do, but would like to do, really is kind of the core fundamental basis of thinking about where you go tomorrow. You know, you figure today it's already decided. But as we start to think about all these next generation systems and new capabilities and, you know, oh, Starlink, and now Starlink actually has customers, even though they're not on aircraft yet, but maybe I need to talk to them too. Maybe I need to put them in my roadmap or a OneWeb or a Teleset. We won't even you know, mention Kuiper, which is you know, just signed one of the largest launch contracts in our industry, but you know, who knows when they're gonna get there. And so let's focus on them for a bit. So this is this kind of emerging non-geo ecosystem. SES is already here. Um, 
They've been here for a while with their Mio constellation called O3B. Now they've kind of expanded and they're in the process of rebuilding that system. It's called Empower, KA Band. They're thinking about wholesale engagement models. SpaceX, KU Band, they've kind of focused on that direct model. Hawaiian JSX as launch partners. OneWeb, kind of a wholesale model for right now, but maybe we'll see. They haven't necessarily made some kind of big analysis, but I think OneWeb is speaking later today, so somebody should ask them that question about you know, whether or not they're gonna go direct and sign on an airline. Tell us that, you know, Philip, sorry, I see you there. Um, you can ask him that question about what, what's going on there. Um, and then Project Hyper from Amazon, right? So lots of, these are lots of these customers are engaging in the market in lots of different ways, with lots of different pathways. They're trying to kind of figure out not only how they're going to work in the aero market, but how they're gonna work in the maritime market, how they're gonna approach the government and military market, how they're gonna approach consumer broadband or enterprise data or wireless backhaul. So aero IFC is one market amongst many, but because aero IFC is $1 out of every 25 that we see in our global space economy report, it tends to trickle up in the front of mind for a lot of people. Having a solution for the aeronautical market does tend to mean you also have a solution for maritime. It might mean you also have a solution for government and military, depending on kind of what the use case is there. But overall, a lot of these solutions are really gonna offer disruptively low latency. Like there is no doubt that kind of on latency sensitive applications, geo versus non-geo, the non-geo is going to be better. I'm sorry, geo providers, you can optimize it all you want. Maybe you'll get close, but the non-geo people are just gonna win because of physics. But they come with the headaches of commercialization timelines, of funding, and you know, having to launch all these systems and unknown how to operate all these satellites. Maybe there's gonna be packet loss, maybe there's gonna be kind of weird things that are going on, and certification processes on the terminal side. So ultimately, we start to see these things get pushed off in the later half of the decade because, hey, if you want to connect an aircraft five years from now or three years from now, you probably have to start doing it today. And geos aren't really standing still. So here's the other thing. It's not like the geo market is saying, oh, that's great, non-geo. I'm just going to sit you know, kind of in my video world and collect my you know, 15-year satellite that I've sold all these video customers. They're not going to move. So I just kind of you know, sit back and kind of enjoy my healthy EBITDA margins. We see competition in North America intensifying. Viasat, Emersat, Bercher, other kind of consolidations, Inosat, Gogo, um, you know, Anuvu kind of bringing in their own microgeo constellation. So all of these new kind of ways of engaging with the market, and again, thinking about, you know, most satellites, there's these really healthy, big, chunky satellites that are getting more and more complex, which are enabling them to deliver more and more sophisticated services, having more and more tailored offerings through software, you know, softwareification and changing ground segments. But ultimately, market winners will largely depend on an end-to-end -end service. And even today, we're still seeing this. So some of the recent announcements, you know, Starlink obviously is the big one. But a lot of contracts have just announced with traditional geo providers, right? And you can bet Starlink was in those conversations when the RFPs were being renewed. But these providers, these airlines, still pick geo for now. And so this gets to some of the last points, right? So another big logo parade, and I'm sorry, there's lots of little gray lines that you can't see, but you should think about each one of these as columns and rows. So the Aero IFC value chain remains extremely complex. 
So if you're an airline looking back up through your network on the backside of that Ethernet port or that Wi-Fi router, and you're trying to determine how many people and places and hardware providers and systems integrators and little widget providers it takes to connect my aircraft, the answer is a lot, probably. And now there's a good reason for that, right? I mean, all these things didn't just create because, hey, we want complexity, we want our margins, we want our this, we want our that. There's a very good reason for why these ecosystems exist and why there is so much complexity. But a lot of these new people that are bringing new software-based services where they're very software-heavy are breaking a lot of these paradigms. And they're trying to rethink and reanalyze and ask ourselves, why does the world work the way it works? And maybe I care, maybe I don't care, but we're gonna look to deliver an awesome end-to-end -end service, and that maybe doesn't look like what the world looks like today. Now, if you're an airline, if you're in tech ops, if you're kind of a hardware installer, if you're a procurement person, you've probably become very comfortable with the way this ecosystem looks like. And all of a sudden, to have some new player come on and say, uh, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna throw that all away. We're gonna do new things, new cool, innovative things that, you know, you know, for me, being young with a ponytail sounds really exciting. But when I'm building you know, a billion dollar business and guest experience and IFC connectivity, and I have significant teams invested in building portals and buying content and all of these other things that you know, my guests and passengers have kind of already expected that maybe I do incremental improvements, not blow the world up, that becomes you know, a, a very decently strong risk conversation of what sort of risk do we need to be able to absorb? What's the legal construction contract that we can kind of think about what are the SLAs and service level agreements? What are our lawyers and our LARP team and our procurement folks? What are the regulatory environments you know, from the FAA and FCC and other kind of various regulatory bodies? What do the kind of OEMs feel like? Are they gonna even allow me to put this on my aircraft? Do I have to go to them and you know, pay their kind of OEM tax? How does all of this gonna work? And this is where the, kind of the rubber meets the road for a lot of these things. We start to think about disrupting a complex ecosystem that exists. And that gets a little scary. So just to kind of get back to our syndicated research, if we look at kind of our, you know, kind of big pillars of how we see the market, 90 commercial airlines with IFC in 2021, about 56% of the VSAT install base are on narrow body airframes. $48 billion in cumulative revenues, 52% of airlines implemented the retail model in 2021, and there's, you know, 200,000 connected addressable airframe units, and that includes general aviation and rotorcraft, which aren't necessarily germane to this conversation. But we're still seeing some impacts from COVID-19. We really do have to ask ourselves, is it kind of this thing that we have to continue to kind of design around instability and in kind of global markets and all these other kinds of things? But the AeroSatcom market saw 39.7% year-over-year growth from 2020 to 2021 in retail revenues, so there's, there's some healthy margins there. One out of every $25 in our global space economy market over the next 10 years comes from global IFC, uh, Aero IFC connectivity. And AeroSatcom is attracting more players, more players with different ways of engaging into the industry. And industry needs to be comfortable with engaging with them, because they're bringing vastly different value propositions, vastly different ways of approaching and solving these problems. And that's not to say that you know, they don't 
need to be measured and monitored, and there's some really great work happening there. But all of these people are looking at trying to deliver against kind of these big three main questions. And so I like to say, hey, it's decision time. You know, we've moved and migrated from am I going to be connected, am I not going to be connected? Those that have connected have made their choice. They're probably on version two or three of their connectivity solution. The ones that aren't connected are probably just waiting for a better price or something. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they just realize their guests don't, don't want to be connected or passengers don't want to be connected. But roadmaps matter. And this isn't just a technology roadmap from your satellite operator or your service provider. This is your roadmap as an airline to approaching how the connected experience works for guests. Now, if you're not in that world, it's important to understand that design point of is going into a portal a friction point? Is airlines delivering content, cache content on board with their portal on their hardware a non-negotiable? Having these kinds of conversations to kind of talk about this. Now, you know, to get back to the satellite world, hey, stay tuned. Leo might not be ready today, but the technology is quickly changing. The satellite market is rapidly evolving. The assumptions that you had about this industry a couple of years ago are probably no longer valid. And the assumptions you have today probably won't be valid in a couple of months anyway. Design for an experience. And so I'm going to plug Peter's panel here for the Seamless Air Alliance later on. And the quality of experience metrics. Having some kind of center of excellence that are designing and thinking around building those capabilities of understanding that end-to-end -end service are really important. There's obviously the technical SLAs of like, hey, is the aircraft actually connected? Did you deliver the CIR? You know, what was your uptime availability over 10,000 feet? What's your promise from 10,000 feet to the gate to gate? You know, all those things are really important, right? But if it's not designing for an experience, if it's not enabling a guest requirement, you probably need to do a little bit more homework. You know, NPS scores are awesome. All these other kinds of things are great. Data analytics are even better. And success requires collaboration. It's kind of my big last point. So portal APIs and understanding who owns what and how does these things interact with each other? Do you have the capability in-house? Do you need to have a vendor in the mix? Do you have crew versus passenger apps that need to, be, need to be fit? Are these line fit versus retrofit decisions? What are the cost points of doing that solution? Is it the same solution for both? Do I need to have a, you know, an OEM involved in this kind of conversation? What's my route structure? Is that going to change this question? And is it maybe not going to change the question at the end of the day, but maybe it might change my deployment timeline? How susceptible to full endless connectivity am I to kind of other supply chain risks of my vendors? Like if a satellite is launched, if it's blown up, you know, not that it happens, but it, you know, um, maybe. Um, what are those kinds of risks? And understanding and absorbing all of those things really do require the collaboration. So we like to say that successful IFC implementation is really a multi-departmental project, and it's more than that. It's really a collaborative effort across customer requirements and understanding guests and people who own that guest story within your organization, talking that all the way through the vendor chain up to the satellite operator and all the way down to the application that they're trying to experience. So I'll be around in the, you know, the coffee break and rest of the day. So if you want to get a hold of me or talk or chat, I'd love to have those conversations. Again, my name is Brad Grady. I'm uh, from NSR, an analysis basing company. And I think that's time for questions.
Brad, will you make your uh, slides available to everyone? There's a couple questions about that. Uh, if really people give me a card, I will make sure that they We can upload them to the app if you're okay with that. I'll need to check. Okay. That's, yep. That yeah, is a, a decision above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, you had some great, great question, or, uh, uh, slides, and so we've had yep. a few people ask about that. We did have a question that came through the app, a little bit detailed, so be ready for this. I'm going to try and read this correctly. You talked a lot about capacity and latency. What do you see in terms of the changing needs and capability to fill those needs for the return link, that's uh, for getting data off the aircraft, versus the prior paradigms much more heavily focused on getting data to the plane? Yeah, so that's, also, that's a great question, right? So this is, um, we all know that, you know, I'm gonna download images, I'm gonna download video, I'm gonna do this, that's very inbound heavy. But what am I sending back to the internet? And that, that's rapidly changing. I don't think we're fully at kind of symmetric network patterns. There's probably flights and patterns and time periods, again, getting to these micro-understandings of, is this a business, or a business plane that's going from Boston to DC and all these business travelers are kind of you know, syncing their emails and files and sending things back and forth, maybe that's more of a symmetric pattern, versus the plane that's going to Disneyland and everyone's streaming Disney Plus, where everything's kind of inbound. So again, kind of understanding that guest experience and more importantly, having network services and capabilities and a vendor that appreciates what those changes and impacts mean are really gonna be kind of mission critical. And that changes the design paradigm of aircraft on board. So these are kind of like, can you introduce more software, more machine learning, more automation, more network management capabilities throughout the entire connectivity ecosystem to say this one particular flight, this one particular hour, all of a sudden needs new dynamic bandwidth allocations. And those are things that we're seeing from vendors. Um, yes, uh, Brad. So first of all, I really enjoyed your talk and your slides. So I really want to thank you for that. Thank you. My question is on the Leo market. Yep. In your slides, you kind of focused on the big four, yep. which is the OneWeb, the Kiefer, the uh, Starlink, and the Telesat. Yep. But if you look at the news in the industry, there's a lot more Leo. I mean, yes. uh, Leo vendors. <laughs> Like number five through number 25. Yes, absolutely. And you, and you kind of didn't really talk about them. Um, and I kind of wanted to sort of hear your perspective on that. Do you really think there's no more room than the big four? Yeah, no. So um, I was at a conference, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and I put up a slide that had all of these logos, all of these names. And then there was like kind of a, a, a big brouhaha of like, oh, hey, these, these people don't exist anymore. So. For every Leo operator that's born, there's probably another one that's died in the time period that they get announced. But you're absolutely right. There are a lot more than just the ones that we mentioned here. These are the biggest ones because they have the biggest constellations, the most capacity, the maybe the most real. I'm gonna use those in quotes because uh, real kind of depends on who you're talking to and kind of the day and time and you know the amount of funding they have. But yeah, absolutely. There's a huge network of people now. The next question is, will some of these, uh, you know, outside of the ones that we talked about, kind of have a significant impact in the market? I mean, obviously, if they go sign, sign a contract with an airline tomorrow, they'll be big, right? But they're likely not going to have that service expertise or capital or kind of capabilities of doing STCs and aircraft installations. And, you know, they're not going to be Starlink where they can bring a lot of these capabilities into the market. They're going to need a partner. So that, I think, is where we start to really look at kind of what is the market selecting? And some of these are kind of in cruise and maritime, so you'll see maybe, hey, this, you know, 
this satellite operator Longio constellation has been announced for a maritime customer. Why aren't they an arrow? Well, the burden to service a maritime ship is pretty low, right? Like two parabolic dishes and hey, you're, you're kind of good to go. It's relatively nebulous regulatory environment. You can get to a ship pretty easily. You, it's kind of in port for a while anyway. So those kind of friction points aren't the same as in the aircraft industry. But I will say stay tuned to kind of what the vendor landscape or the service provider landscape looks like. Those are the ones that are going to be really making the choices, except for the well-funded kind of satellite operators, which I think we talked about here. But if you want to talk about it more, you know, come talk to me. One last question before we yes, take our break. Thank you, Brad, for, for your presentation. I, I found it very, very good. I'm Juan Lora from SES, and yep. uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you made clear that there's not really, I mean, like geo versus non-geo, they serve different, different purposes, right? Like it's not that one is better than the other. It depends on what we're talking about. And we are seeing also like uh, most newcomers, they are very specialized on one particular kind of orbit. So just this question that we, you, just, uh, you just answered is on Leo. So I, I wanted to see your, your thoughts about those operators who are either already multi-orbit, like uh, SES, or that will might uh, consider going to different orbits to you know, be able to address the whole cake and not just one part of it. Yeah, no, I think that's, again, these kind of roadmaps and understanding the customers, that's kind of really one of the key things. And it really gets, it gets very interesting how people think about multi-orbit, multi-band, and hybrid when you start to read RFP language. So if you sit with an airline and people, the vendors start to pitch you, I'm multi-orbit, or multi-band, you really have to kind of say, oh, wait a minute, what does that term really mean? And sometimes it means exactly what we have in our mind, that it goes all the way that, like, I'm doing real-time gaming in row one, that goes over Leo or non-geo, I'm in row 36B, I'm streaming, that goes over geo, and the aircraft itself is segmenting that network traffic dynamically on demand, and there's, you know, some whiz-bangy tech that, has, that makes that happen. Other times, it's... The aircraft makes a decision when it pulls back from the gate of, hey, I have 60% are business travelers, they need low latency connections, so therefore I'm going to be a non-geo flight today or for this one route. Or the last one is I'm an airline and 40% of my planes are equipped with you know, these kind of hybrid or multi-orbit systems or kind of I've chosen that these 40 planes are on LEO and these 60% of the planes or whatever are on GEO. And that's how I'm multi-orbit, multi-band. So it's really a complex kind of equation as to what we're starting to see. Now, I don't think the industry's right there and if somebody has kind of awesome technology that they have in the labs and is deployed on aircraft today, that'd be awesome and I'd love to know about it. But I don't think we're at the real-time routing across multiple orbital regimes and yes, you're kind of flying on Air Force One. Like those are really sophisticated installations on senior leadership or VVIP planes, not entirely representative of what you're gonna get on a mainline narrow body 737 or you know, A321. Um, so I think that's what we're starting to see of, as we start to go down this road of you know, multi-band or multi-orbit or whatever, it really is going to depend on what the reference is. You know, are we talking about the application layer at the wireless access point or kind of the, mo the, the plane or all the way up? That brings us to the end of another episode of the Connected Aviation Intelligence Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on the Apple iOS podcast app 
or any smartphone or tablet podcasting application, feel free to rank and comment on our podcast as well to let us know how we can improve. It also helps others find the podcast. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Connected Aviation Intelligence Podcast.